Welcome to the 24th QuackCast, a skeptical and sarcastic evaluation of supplements, quacks, frauds, and charlatans. Oh, I'm sorry, blew it again. I mean, complimentary and alternative medicine. This podcast is dated 328 and is going to cover the topic, the yeast syndrome. Bark 2 is a side project of Puswell LLC, the publisher of the Purse of Flazer's Annotated Compendium of Infectious Disease Facts, Dogma, and Opinion. Your uber hyperlinked electronic guide to infectious diseases at puswell.com. Where you will also find the Purse of Flazer's podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, CME accredited. The motto of this podcast is from Thomas Jefferson, who said, Ridicule is the only weapon that can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. References and show notes are available on the webpage, as well as old podcasts, both MP3 and M4A. Also, I am now an occasional contributor to the Science-Based Medicine blog. Because the biggest problem of the world today is there's not enough Mark Chrislip. So this week's topic is the yeast connection. Now I'll let you know up front that this is a topic near and dear to my grinchy old heart. First, because I'm an infectious disease doctor and I have an affinity for all things infectious. Second, I did my fellowship under Dr. John Edwards, who is the authority on Canada and the United States, although... I bet he would disallow any knowledge of my actions, but I spent four years of my life living and breathing Canada, and I am not talking figuratively here. It's Candida, by the way, not Candida, which is sort of a George Bernard Shaw play, nor is it pronounced Canada, which is the country up north. And it's prostate, not prostrate, and it's cephazolin, not cephazolin. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's first talk about yeast in general. From a practical point, clinically the yeasts of importance are Canada, which includes many species, including Canada albicans. Then there are Saccharomyces, which are in probiotics and, by the way, are used to raise bread and brew beer. Fire wasn't the real gift of the gods, it was Saccharomyces. It's not usually a pathogen, but as I mentioned before, I once had a patient who had AIDS who was also a home brewer, and he grew Saccharomyces in his blood. Really. I guess you could say I knew what ailed him. And then there's Cryptococcus neoformans, a pathogen that is a lecture in and of itself. Now, Canada albicans, and to a lesser extent the other Canada species, are normal part of the human gastrointestinal tract. We all have Canada, and depending on medications and underlying medical conditions, some have more Canada than others. Your colon, as I have mentioned before, is a complex ecosystem filled with hundreds of species of bacteria that keep Canada at bay. But if you get antibiotics or immunosuppression, the Canada can overgrow and cause thrush or diaper rash or a variety of superficial infections. If you're in the ICU in STS, that's sicker than shit, Canada can get in the bloodstream. This is bad. It doubles your mortality. It doubles your length of stay. It does not double your pleasure and double your fun. You do not want yeast in your blood. But for normal people, Canada is part of your bowel ecosystem. So those of you who are going to say that you are going to go to Canada if Bush is reelected, well, you only need to put your head up your... um, Well, never mind. Bush got there first. So, first message, Canada is part of the normal ecosystem. Now, there are a number of people who do not feel well, and they do not feel well all the time. They are tired, and they ache, and they sleep too much, or they don't sleep enough, and they generally feel like listless crap. No one knows what their underlying problem is or what to do to make them feel better. 
Sometimes they get labels like chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, or instead they wander off into the world of scams where they can discover any one of a number of theories of everything. Physicists I know have been searching for decades for a theory of everything without success. They should change their focus to scams, where there is no shortage of theories of everything. All, or nearly all, disease are caused by one of these mutually exclusive theories of everything, or TOE, or TOES. And this particular little piggy has a lot of names. The Candida Syndrome, the Candida Hypersensitivity Syndrome, the Yeast Connection, the Candidiasis Hypersensitivity Syndrome, and the Candida Related Complex. In the United Kingdom, it is often referred to as the gut fermentation syndrome. Got a problem? Well, it's the Canada. Now, back in the Middle Ages, your name was derived from your job. Bakers were the people who made bread, and Smith made the horseshoes, and the pederasts were the clergy. No, wait, wait, that's pendergrast, not pederast. I'm sorry, I misread my notes. Forget that last part. Be that as it may, the Canada Syndrome was popularized by a Dr. William G. Crook in his book, The Yeast Connection, A Medical Breakthrough. A medical breakthrough, mind you. And think that physicians are often accused of arrogance, but hmm, holy cannoli. Now, Dr. Crook derived his work from a Dr. C. Orion Truss, M.D., who published his initial findings in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry. Orthomolecular psychiatry operates under the delusion that mental health can be treated with megadoses of vitamins and other nutritional excesses. As the Wikipedia snarkily puts it, quote, megavitamin and dietary therapy to treat schizophrenia was tested in 1999 and found to be effective at increasing the levels of vitamins, but did not show any impact on the symptoms of schizophrenia, end quote. The theory behind this nonsense is that some people, due to poor diet or antibiotics or birth control pills, have their normal candida overgrow in their gastrointestinal tract, and they get an allergy or a hypersensitivity to the yeast and illness results. Or maybe it's the toxins that the yeast produce. Or maybe it's the suppression of the immune system that the yeast produces. Or perhaps it's the hormone-like substances that some candida make. Or maybe it's all the above. They wander about as to which is the etiology, and since this is a theory of everything, perhaps all pathophysiologies are possible. Here is a list of basic science studies and animal models that support the biologic plausibility of the yeast syndrome. I would like to thank John Cage for the background music during that extensive list. I will not play the other 4 minutes and 23 seconds. Since the yeast connection was published, proponents of the disease have multiplied in both the field of scams and some rather feeble-minded or gullible MDs. It's a good bellwether for the mentally infirm. If you have a doctor who suggests Canada or homeopathy, then you know that they are participating in scams that send their sludge into the mainstream of mainstream medicine. It's time to find a new doc. So what kind of illnesses does Canada allegedly cause? Again, it's damn near everything. It's a theory of everything. Aren't you listening? Schizophrenia and multiple sclerosis and autism or any number of problems which have widely divergent pathophysiologies that have been blamed on the Canada syndrome, but mostly as a hodgepodge of nonspecific symptoms that share no common etiology. And there is no good clinical support for this data. None. 
Most of the Canada syndrome is made up out of whole cloth with a heavy frosting of endless anecdotes. If there was ever a, quote, disease, end quote, where the motto plural of anecdote is anecdotes, not data, this is it. So many testimonials. But as I have also said with meta-analysis, when you combine an enormous numbers of small piles of dog crap into a big heap, you get a great big pile of dog crap, not valid clinical information. Like many scams, they take real studies and conflate them out of all semblance of reality. For example, to go from overgrowth of Canada from antibiotics, which is real, to the cause of all disease is like a robin declaring, fear me for I am a dinosaur, a descendant of Tyrannosaurus rex. This is a common issue when you read the scam propaganda. They often mix truth, half-truth, and fiction with equal amounts, and it takes a fair amount of background knowledge to know which is which. There is a huge medical literature in the interactions between Canada and various constituents of the immune system. Some, under very specific conditions and using a small subset of the immune system, are immunosuppressing. But there are an equal number of studies that demonstrate that exposure to Canada can prime the immune system to kill bacteria or cancer. So whether or not Canada are immune boosting or immune enhancing depends on which literature you care to cherry pick. And why cherry pick? Why that fruit? Why not avocado pick or horse chestnut pick? Anyway, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to limit the discussion to the literature that is specifically about the yeast connection and not review the over 39,000 legitimate articles on Canada. The diagnosis of Canada syndrome is based primarily on a series of open-ended questions to which most people can offer a yes at one time or another. These questions are nonspecific, and to call them moronic would be to insult those with an IQ between 50 and 69. Now get this, these are the questions that are used in several studies to determine if you have an issue with Canada. It's the FRDQ7 questionnaire that's derived from Dr. Crook. On the web, there are some variations on these questions that determine whether or not you have the Canada syndrome. However, these are questions that have actually been used in the medical literature. Here are the questions. One, have you at any time in your life taken, quote, broad-spectrum antibiotics? They don't specify. Two, have you taken tetracycline or other broad-spectrum antibiotics for a month or longer? Three, are your symptoms worse on a damp, muggy days or in moldy places? I especially like this question. How damp, muggy, or moldy places are going to affect the growth deep inside your colon is unexplained. But yeasts like wet, dark areas, right? So wet, dark areas would make your yeast worse, right? Or is it the external yeast that caused the problem? Canada is a yeast, but not a mold, and certainly not an environmental mold. There should not be Canada in your wine cellar, for example, unless it's being used as a latrine. Four, do you crave sugar? Huh? What? Just how are yeast supposed to lead to a sugar craving unless they turn you into a pod people? Must have Pepsi. Or in the case of my listeners, of course, iPod people. Five, do you have a feeling of being drained, occasional, mild, frequent, or moderately severe or disabling? I'm that way all the time. Six, are you bothered by vaginal burning, itching, or discharge? Or do you have similar symptoms in the penis? Parenthetically, yeast is not a big problem of urethritis in the male. It's primary vaginitis, but they have to include both sexes here, so they throw this in to keep things, I suppose, balanced. Seven, are you bothered by burning, itching, or watery eyes? Eyes? What? I don't get it. By what possible pathophysiologic mechanism could yeast cause watery eyes? 
allergies, but wait, it's the toxins that cause chronic candida. This one drives me nuts because they use two different pathophysiologies to come up with their symptoms. But that's often the way with, quote, diseases or therapies, end quote, that make no clinical sense. Now, this is the sort of criteria they use to determine if someone has candida hypersensitivity syndrome, and I suffer from most of these problems. I will mention here that this questionnaire has never, ever, ever received any independent validation. In the few studies that have used it, and it is based on Dr. Crook's questionnaire, they start with the assumption that the questionnaire is valid, and then those who score highly have the Canada syndrome. So it goes like this. Who has Canada syndrome? Those that score high on the questionnaire. How do you know people who score high have the Canada syndrome? Because they have a high score. That's the extent of the validation. Impressive. Now, here are the symptoms you need to look for for the Canada syndrome, and this is only part of them. Now, my understanding of anatomy and physiology would make it hard to tie all of these together. For example, fatigue, problems with concentration, flu-like symptoms, tightness in the shoulders and neck, hyperacidity, brown-colored mucus, blisters in the mouth, unrefreshing sleep, sore throat, dark circles under the eye, an aversion to being touched or jumping, chronic sinus problems, chronic dental problems, depression, irritability, anxiety, panic attacks, recurrent obsessive thoughts, personality changes and mood swings, irrational race to crying for no reason, fear of talking to people, any kind of confrontation, isolation, paranoia, And the physical findings include chills and night sweats and shortness of breath and dizziness and sensitivity to heat or cold and alcohol intolerance, thank God I don't have that, and gluten intolerance and irregular heartbeat and irritable bowel and constipation or diarrhea, gas or abdominal bloating, low-grade fever or low body temperature. So if your temperature is low or your temperature is high, you have Canada, numbness, tingling, or burning sensation, dryness of the mouth, difficulty swallowing, my personal favorite, projectile vomiting. Also, menstrual problems, recurrent yeast infections, recurrent ear infections, rashes, eczema, dermatitis, acne, skin discoloration, dandruff, jock itching, chronic athlete's foot, chronic toenail fungus, ringing in the ears, allergies, asthma, weight changes without changes in diet, lightheadedness, feeling in a fog, fainting, muscle twitching, muscle weakness, restless leg syndrome, low sex drive. I guess we all get that. And these are only some of the symptoms that have been commonly reported and documented. Now, all these have radically different pathophysiologies and just... And although I tend to be an Occam's kind of guy, to say that all these could be caused by Canada is sheer nonsense. Okay, so you've answered the questions. You have the yeast syndrome. You have every possible symptom under the sun. You have the yeast syndrome. Are there more objective ways for determining whether or not you have the yeast syndrome? Now, there are a variety of proprietary blood tests that will allegedly diagnose Canada, as well as the often alleged food allergies. The most common test is an antibody test, and labs will variously check your IgG, your IgM, and your IgA against Canada. Now, since we all have Canada in our gastrointestinal tract, we all have antibodies against Canada. As a result, the blood test for this disease is neither sensitive nor specific. Serology for normal flora is always worthless. And these are not supported by good clinical data. Now, as an aside here, even when labs are certified, that doesn't mean that tests they run are valid. It's like a restaurant. They may be certified clean, but that doesn't mean the food is any damn good. There are any number of labs that offer testing, often used by naturopaths, whose data is questionable. Every once in a while, I get a patient who brings in a fistful of these labs, each with an extensive interpretation 
all of which were ordered by a, usually a naturopath or a chiropractor, all paid with cold, hard cash, all used to validate all sorts of goofy diagnoses to treat deficiencies or toxins, none of which have any good validity. One lab, popular with the local naturopath, once sent me a photo of, quote, Babesia, unquote, on their smear, and it was a platelet clump. And I remember, although I cannot find the reference, that one of these labs had a test for Lyme that was positive in everybody who had the test. Rather than conclude that the test stunk on ice, they concluded that everybody had Lyme disease. There are tests you can use to determine if you have disseminated candidiasis and ICU-acquired infections, but it is not the same as these unvalidated tests that prove you have the Canada syndrome. Blood tests do have a certain confirming power to them, however, and can help convince the gullible or ignorant that they have a disease when, in fact, they don't. As an aside, blood tests, especially serologies for infectious diseases, are not necessarily a two-way street. If you have a clinically compatible syndrome, say Q fever, and your antibodies are positive, you probably have Q fever. However, if you do not have a clinically compatible disease and your blood tests are positive, you probably have a false positive. Labs confirm the clinical disease, not the other way around. So the lab tests that are available currently for Canada are, as best I can tell, a waste of time and money. So where are you now? You have the symptoms, you take the quiz, you decide you have Canada syndrome. You get it confirmed with a worthless test from a suspect lab, and now you need treatment. Well, what is the treatment? The treatment if for the Canada syndrome is diet, supplements, and antifungals. In fact, part of the way the diagnosis is made is response to therapy. Now, another aside. A long time ago in a journal far away, an article was published entitled Observations on Spiraling and Parasism. Its causes, allures, and perils with particular reference to antibiotic therapy. This was published in the American Journal of 1989 and is one of the great articles on critical thinking. And it lists a series of logical fallacies in medical thinking that most people go through. If you are a doc, I suggest you pull it and read it. It will be well worth your time. One of the mistakes that are made by people in medicine is that a response to therapy makes the diagnosis. No, 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 a thousand times no. I see this all the time. Patient has a fever. Patient got antibiotics. Fever went away. Aha, patient had a bacterial infection. Unless you have an airtight diagnosis, the fact that a patient got better with therapy is meaningless. Patients get better and patients got therapy, not patients got better from therapy. The mantra is true, true, and unrelated. In the skeptical world, its association is not causation, and with good reason. In medicine, it is easy to forget this given the large number of interventions that we do each day and often the lack of precision for many common diseases. Causality is very tricky with therapeutic interventions, and it is good to be skeptical. Now, for non-life-threatening disease, the natural history is for things to get better, and since most people seek care when they are going to get better anyway, they credit the intervention. By the way, it's my policy to take all credit when the patient improves and to blame nursing when things go south. But there are an enormous number of anecdotes of them what changed their diet to avoid promoting yeasts, often avoiding carbohydrates, and they took antifungals, and they took supplements, and yes, indeed, do they got better. That they got better from whatever ailed them, I do not doubt. People get sick, 
people get better. It's the why they got better that's the tricky part. I do not doubt the diet will change the way you feel, and many of the anecdotes note a loss of weight. If you drop 30 or 40 pounds of lard, you're going to feel better. And to slide into anecdote, I remember back in my college days that for several months I was a vegetarian. I certainly felt different. I was hungry all the time for meat, and I was lightheaded and giddy from the lack of animal flesh. That Dairy Queen burger that marked my fall from grace remembers the most memorable meal of my life, and that includes eating duck at La Tour d'Argent in Paris. But there's no biologic possibility to suggest that yeast can cause widespread symptoms or that changing diet can lead to a change in the candida in your gastrointestinal tract or your response to that candida. So, is there any good science to confirm or deny the yeast syndrome? Well, there's not much, and all this out there is fundamentally negative. There are no studies to support the hypothesis that normal people have a candida overgrowth. At the basic science level, which quackademic medicine usually ignores, I can find one clinical study. They took 35 patients who scored high on the above-mentioned Canada questionnaire and looked to see if they had high levels of immunoglobulin G against Canada when compared to their controls. And the anti-Canada IgG levels were higher. And this means? I don't know. What do antibodies mean when you have a non-existent disease diagnosed with a worthless questionnaire? You got me. How about clinical trials? Well, there's the same paucity of supporting information. The American Journal of Medicine looked at 100 chronic fatigue patients and tried to determine if there was a difference between them that had chronic fatigue syndrome from yeast and them what didn't. No feature separated the two patient populations. There was no difference in symptoms if the cause was due to yeast or due to something else. It was the opinion of the authors that the majority of patients who suffered from fatigue in fact suffered from depression, as do the people that read this literature. I understand this very much. So how about therapeutic interventions? As mentioned above, I greatly distrust diagnosis based on response to therapy, and if the underlying diagnosis is based on faulty premises, what can be said about the intervention study? Mm, probably nothing. There are no studies on any of the dietary or supplement changes in a response in patients who allegedly have the Canada syndrome. There have been two studies that evaluated antifungals in patients with presumptive Canada hypersensitivity syndrome. Both studies were less than thrilling. The first was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at, quote, 32-week randomized double-blind crossover study using four different combinations of nystatin or placebo given orally or vaginally in 42 premenopausal women who met the present criteria for the syndrome and had a history of candida vaginitis. Okay? They randomized people to get nystatin, which is an antifungal, or placebo, either by mouth or vaginally, to see if they had a response. And the results? The placebo was as good as treatment. Conclusion? Not much. And it should come as no surprise that if you treat a diagnosis based on nonsense, you get no results from therapy. Up next, water is wet, fire is hot. But here is the interesting thing, and again I quote, On average, the scores in, for systemic symptoms improved 25% with the three active treatment regimens and 23% with the all-placebo regimen, a difference of only 2%. See? Everybody got better, whether they had the active ingredient or not. And this sums up an issue with all the studies where the endpoints are not objective and free from the bias of the patient and the investigator. If the patient thinks they should get better, they will get better. 
And in the end, the studies demonstrate the same effect one sees with faith healers when they make the crippled walk, the blind hear, or the deaf see. Short-term gains and improvements to meet the expectations of themselves or others is expected. And this is always the question. If a patient thinks they're better subjectively, but they're not better objectively, are they better? Well, that's a topic in and of itself. The other study was published in the Journal of Family Practice and entitled Effectiveness of Nystatin in Polysymptomatic Patients, a Randomized Double-Blind Trial of Nystatin versus Placebo in a General Practice. They had 120 patients they recruited by advertising, and they found those that scored high on the unvalidated, totally subjective candidate questionnaire mentioned above. Then they were randomized to placebo or nystatin and given a choice, a choice, mind you, of a regular diet or a diet that prevents yeast, or so they say. This was a diet to avoid foods containing sugars, yeast, molds, such as honey, jam, ice cream, <laughs> lemonade, fruit juices. Now, you can have freshly prepared fruit juices, but not pasteurized fruit juices, which I've never understood because they're basically identical, except the fresh one should have yeast in it and the pasteurized one shouldn't. Alcohol, oh, God forbid I should go without that. Cheese, breads, and pastries containing yeast. Now, Saccharomyces in Canada are not the same yeast, and breads are killed yeast. The yeasts are dead. How are those going to cause problems? This is so irrational. Additionally, they were asked not to consume more than half a glass of milk or yogurt a day. Now, as I mentioned, there is zero data that I can find that a diet, as mentioned above, will alter the growth of yeast in the gastrointestinal tract. They had the patients choose because it was beyond the study to have a placebo-controlled diet. Now, I cannot emphasize enough that when your endpoints are subjective, anything that makes it possible for the patient to know what sort of therapy they are getting totally invalidates the study. Then they were asked a battery of questions before and after the intervention. Now, four patients had to be excluded from the trial, and some were switched from one group to another in terms of diet because they switched in mid-study. And three patients in each group did not comply with the treatment, but were included in the analysis anyway. So six patients were included in this, even though they failed. This inspires confidence in the result, does it not? So they asked 45 questions, and for six of the questions, there was a significant difference between the placebo group and the nystatin group. Again, so what? You could also argue that 39 symptoms did not change. And the curious thing was the symptoms that changed for the better. They were dizziness slash loss of balance, attacks of anxiety, burning or watery eyes, constipation or diarrhea, chronic rashes or itching, and shaking or irritable when hungry. Now, given the lack of blinding with diet and the changes in assignment, who knows what to make of these changes, especially since the real issue with these patients is fatigue and general malaise. Given the natural history of symptoms to wax and wane and the potential for bias, this is a GIGO study. Garbage in, garbage out. This is a great example of the ongoing issue with all quackademic studies, removing the bias. It's the hardest part of clinical studies, especially when there are no objective endpoints, and especially when the study is based on nonsense. And that's it. That's the data to support the yeast connection. It is a made-up disease based on poorly defined case reports and endless anecdotes. It has no biologic possibility. It has no basic science to support the disease. There are no reliable, validated tests to confirm the diagnosis. Treatment is unproven or unsupported by clinical trials. So, 
Besides that, it seems like a reasonable disease hypothesis to me. As if there's ever a chance in hell I'm going to live without beer or bread. So that's it. The references, as always, are on the website. This is brought to you as a side project of Pusswear.com, where you will find the Persiflagers podcast, a bi-weekly review of infectious diseases, where you can get free type 1 CME. This is copyright 2008 to Creative Commons. References on the show notes can be linked at quackcast.com, where old podcasts are archived as well. Send your hate mail and spam and questions about quackery to knowitall at quackcast.com. I will eventually, I promise, respond to your email. But work and family do take precedence. Don't forget to check out the Science-Based Medicine blog, where I'm now the occasional author. They do need one juvenile voice among the wise heads on that blog. You know my motto, you're only young once, but you can be immature all your life. Thanks to everybody who's written such kind reviews on iTunes. Being the attention whore that I am, I greatly appreciate them. My 10-year-old keeps an eye on all the reviews all over the world, and he always lets me know when there's a new one. So as always, thank you very much, and I'll leave you after a half an hour of random babbling. Thank you. In dictation. Goodbye.